morning good afternoon good evening and welcome to a new edition of the redraft podcast with me will stevenson and my co-host romina ramos hello how you doing Rom? i'm good i'm tired but i am happy <laughs> i've got a full heart today uh, and mm. i'm very happy to be here yeah me too tell the people why why are we so happy why are we so overjoyed on this uh, lovely sunday evening we had our inaugural uh, our very very first workshop for the cic the doors open last night we gathered the three guys with a, a group of people and we produced some lovely bits of art some lovely zines about all sorts of things um and yeah it was a really good turnout it was a great workshop um and yeah i i I'm, i've got a really full heart today i wasn't ex- i don't know i don't know why i wasn't expecting but i I guess it's the first one. You don't know what you don't know what turnout you're gonna have. You don't mm. know what if people are gonna be perceptive of it. But turns out the people of Bolton are very perceptive to a lovely bit of creativeness. During the rail strikes as well, beautiful. We had a couple of people travel as well, and yeah, it was it was a really wonderful event. So thank you to everyone that comes down. More to come on the CIC um, front as we carry on, and you can go and see the highlights of the of the night on our Instagram at the doors open CIC. You can, um, you can. In other news, I'm heading over to a secret location in Manchester tonight to go and host the poetry at Persons Unknown Festival, um, which I'm really excited about. Sort of co-created uh, by Tonka Bell, um, a stalwart of the Manchester poetry scene. So not quite sure what to expect, but I'm excited about it nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, that should be that should be an interesting and a great evening all the same, absolutely. Yeah, we'll, uh, I'll update you next week on how the, the squat poetry goes. I'm excited. Um, but moving on, we've got an amazing guest for you this week. Um, our first mainstream international guest, we had Naz on as a bonus special, but we've got um, an international guest on as the main event this week, which is exciting. Yeah. Mr. Sonny Drake. Um, who is a dramatist, a podcaster, a writer, the creator of Climate Change and Other Small Talk, a new podcast drama, along with a whole host of plays that have been critically um, lauded from Canada and beyond. And it was a really fascinating chat um, on all fronts. Yeah. I wasn't quite sure what to expect going in. Yeah, um... Yeah, me too. You know, we wasn't uh, we wasn't really familiar with with Sonny and his work. Um, we were passed we were passed Sonny on from our pals at Poetry to Your Ears, which was fantastic. But what a fascinating guy! What a great chat! I really love the mm. section where he talks about his clusters of work. I won't say too much for the listener, but yeah, it's a fascin- fascinating chat and a really interesting way to look at um, what we do as creatives. You know. Mm. All the all the sorts of odd jobs and, and bits and bobs that we have to do uh, in this industry. Um, yeah, it's a really really great chat. I really enjoyed chatting to Sunny. Absolutely, tiny bit of housekeeping. Um, next Sunday, the twenty first, is the next version of Switchblade, headlined by the aforementioned um, Tonka Bell. Free or donation tickets available via Switchblade Society on Instagram. Eventbrite, Facebook, all the usual places. Yeah, we've got that a uh, couple of days after that on the 
Tuesday on the Tuesday 23rd of May. Um, we've got a banging lineup, lots of new faces coming through. Uh, and again, free tickets are available on Inventbrite and on Nata Bolton's uh, social media pages as well. Wonderful. So we will leave you in the very capable hands of Mr. Sonny Drake. See you on the other side. I got to do um, drama as a kid and then also at high school as well. And um, and it's, during high school, I really actually wanted to be an actor. Um, and that's what I was going to do, you know, when I quote unquote grew up. And, and I had this kind of um, quite sort of devastating experience, uh, devastating in the, in the sense of what would be devastating for a teenager, where um, I was in the school play, you know, and I was so excited. And, uh, and then after the, and I had this tiny, minuscule role of like five lines or something or rather. And after the play, I came up behind um, a group of friends and this one friend whose back was to me was saying, oh yeah, no, Sonny was really bad. Sonny was really bad. And I just happened to come up and hear that. And it just literally like, uh, you know, imploded my own sense of possibility around what I could do for my future. And I pretty much on the spot uh, quit um, you know, my, my theater aspirations and then didn't really kind of come back to it until, you know, probably about kind of five years later when, you know, then I found through my twenties, like anytime something kind of was bubbling or brewing in my life, a question, a confusion, a curiosity, something I was personally dealing with. I was just, it sort of spat out the sides in a performance piece, some sort of uh, you know, kind of um, backyard type performance piece. And so I sort of slowly made my way back around to theatre. But, um, but yeah, uh, you know, certainly kind of um, had, had a little bit of a, a bump in the road there. So um, when did you turn to writing then? Was that early on or was that a bit later as well? Yeah, that was a little bit, well, it was sort of woven into the things I was doing. But, um, but writing as a primary focus came a lot later. So my earliest creations were fusions of, um, uh, well, some of it was sort of uh, um, spoken movement. So kind of um, poetry, although I really don't think of myself as I'm not a particularly poetic writer. I'm, I'm much more, I'm sort of much more a kind of story based writer than a poetic writer. But I used to sort of write some early something that you could call, you know, poetry or spoken word but I would then infuse they were very physical so I would then infuse a lot of movement in I also used to um, in my earlier days did a lot of puppetry and worked with um, um, collaborated very heavily with video and stop-motion animation artists where I would integrate in um, uh, projections less of sort of a projection as a backdrop and more of um, uh, you know, kind of an, an integrated where, for example, I would argue with my own video image. Um, so kind of a backwards and forwards, or I would have a, a puppet who was climbing into a part, a hand puppet who was climbing into a part of the set at the precise moment, then the stop motion animation version of that puppet would take over. Um, so yeah, and I used to kind of, my earliest work was one person shows. 
And then at some point, um, you know, I love having, you know, sort of gotten to have that as my history, but at some point, I guess I wanted different challenges and, um, you know, and wanted, and my, my, both my style evolved, um, but also, um, you know, I decided, I ended up kind of really loving writing. And so then I kind of, in my, you know, later, um, you know, uh, parts of my career, I, um, or, or these middle parts. I'm not in my late career. I'm in my mid career. In these middle parts of my career, I sort of, um, you know, got a lot more interested in writing. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so you you started putting on producing your your sort of shows quite early on. Um, how did you find that process? You know, was it was was it well received? Was it um, how how did you find the process of actually producing and putting things on yourself? Yeah, well, I um, I mean, that was the the only option for me at the time because I didn't go to theatre school, so no theatre was going to put on my work. Um, and um, so for me, it wasn't even really a sort of a conscious decision as much as that if I wanted to make a work, I was going to have to produce it myself. And um. And, you know, something I often sort of reflect back on now, I have a different relationship with my audience and, and, and attention to kind of audience pathways into my work is still very much at the forefront of how I create work. But from a very different perspective, back in the day, I knew my audience. I literally like, you know, um, I would put on shows in basements, in warehouses, in backyards, in deserts, in, you know, in these kind of, uh, cheap or free or found, um, spaces that then I, I had this very, and, and because I also would perform in my own work, I had a very tangible relationship to my audiences. So I could see, I got that really direct feedback. Is this piece working? Or even more micro than that, is this line in this piece working? How is this being received? What's happening? And that was really important and pivotal to my craft that direct kind of feedback line with my audience and because you know as a trans playwright as well and you know because there was uh you know there's more and there's more trans content now there still needs to be a hugely uh, uh you know increase in trans um content uh now particularly with sort of trans backlashes that we're seeing at the moment um uh, but at the, you know, but there is a, at least a, a little more trans content now. At the time, I wasn't getting to read books about with by or about trans characters or certainly not about nuanced trans characters or movies or theater or et cetera. And so, uh, you know, my audiences were very hungry for the work that I had on offer because it wasn't being offered anywhere else. And it's interesting to kind of reflect back even though I had this very direct feedback line and that, you know, that helped me develop my craft. Um, I also reflect back that in a way, I feel like I got away with a little bit of sloppy art that I didn't have to polish and fine tune because the content was so needed. Um, and now sort of, you know, I've, I've gone on to kind of, you know, really work on and I feel like, you know, the work that I make is a lot kind of crisper and sharper and uh, the, the art of it is a lot better. Um, at the time, I feel like the art was was hitting a spot um, because it was very needed um, and I had very few opportunities um, for mentoring and support and uh, because I didn't perceive that institutions were going to be a supportive place for me, as a trans person, I didn't have that kind of pedagogy. I didn't have that 
those teachers and that support to go, right, this is really interesting what you're doing here. This is fantastic. But what about this part here? Like, you know, what if you X, Y, or Z? Um, so, so yeah, that's sort of, you know, that's been a, a, a part of my kind of journey is to seek out and, and learn how to learn um, as well. So that's kind of like workshopping, you know, when you say that you got to like, get really immediate feedback from your audience and see what's working and it's not it's quite it's really nice because it's like your workshop like will for instance is writing a, a one-man show at the moment and he gets to to workshop that at different open mic nights and it really helps and informs his writing um and so it's it's really interesting and the second thing um is that you said you, you know your audience was really hungry for for that kind of writing and that those kind of shows um for me, I I I'm identify as non-binary, and it's only very recent because I've only very recently been seeing literature about it and reading about it, and understanding that you know, understanding that kind of my thoughts on that and my feelings on that and stuff. And it's five years ago, I didn't have that literature, I didn't have these things, these this work that's being put out, and it's really needed, and it, we need more of it, as you said. So yeah, I just wanted to touch on that. Um, go on, Will. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah important conversation to be had there I, I i think we'll loop back to that later i think what stood out to me was you very cognizant and very aware of like as you say mid-career etc and i think a lot of the people listening i think we're in, in that stage that you referred to earlier is that like we have an immediate creative circle of people who are in sort of the northwest of england and forming those steps out of like the open mic scene and out of um as you say performing in wherever you can perform and I, I was interested in your thoughts on like how you because i mean you know you've had broadway world the globe and, and mail calgary herald like very um institutional respect now at this point but i wondered how the journey was to go from performing with these really sort of micro audiences and, and getting that live feedback and how did you do you think was there a particular phase or, or stage of your career where you were like okay I can see that I'm sort of climbing the ladder so to speak and and how that impacted on your practice yeah well I I mean I think for a status to say that I'm really glad that I had that you know that whole sort of what I can consider like my early sort of development period I'm really glad that mm. I wasn't doing work with institutions during that period because I feel like that mm. enabled me you know so I guess my first sort of thing is looking back I wish I had just kind of chilled a little bit on the fact that I wasn't getting institutional support because actually um, I'm glad that I had the opportunity to develop my own voice and my own style away from, you know, away from sort of the established, um, you know, theatre professionals and theatre industry kind of going, you know, having their sort of say on, well, that's not dramaturgically sound or that's not really how we do it in theatre or, you know, um, I, I feel like mm -hmm. I didn't really sort of, um, I didn't know what is a quote unquote well-made play, what's the like, I didn't sort of, because mm -hmm. I didn't know any of those things, I just made stuff up for a really long time. And even though I'm really grateful now to have access to kind of um, this institutional support and have access to, you know, peers, et cetera, I also feel like I came to that at a time when I'd also carved out a kind of a unique style and a way that I liked to, both a process, mm -hmm. 
but also a, a, a style of work. Um, and um, uh, but at some point, I certainly was like, you know what, I want institutional support. Um, and when I but I had then at that point built up enough of a body of work that then the work spoke for started speaking for itself. But I'm glad if I had gotten that attention from institutions earlier, one, I think they may have written me off as like, what's this kind of, you know, what's mm. this sort of what's this work? Um, uh, you know, but then so then I had a body of work. I had a style. I had a something that that then institutions started to respond to. Um, it wasn't, you know, it was still like uh, I, you know, I had to do a, an enormous amount of work. I mean, theatre and creative industries really and truly are an endurance feat in dealing with rejection, you know. And mm. some, and I like to kind of tell um, emerging artists and other folks I work with, remind them how many no's I deal with on a daily basis, even though now from the outside, it's like my peers or my mentees kind of see, oh, you got this and now so-and-so is producing that. And now the Stratford Festival, like the biggest theater in Canada is producing your work. Like, you know, it seems like now I'm sort of in this, this whole, like everyone's just constantly saying, yes, let's support your work, you know. But it's like, um, you know, it's it's on a daily basis dealing with, oh, no, uh, that work's not quite a right match for us or not even a no, just not hearing back. I'm constantly approaching kind mm. of, you know, folks who I never literally never even hear back from, never even have a response from and just kind of like. You know, not personalizing that. I mean, I've um, I've sat on um, a lot of uh, theater juries, and you know, when you've when you've sat in a room with ten creative professionals, and you and you've all seen the exact same show, and three of them are like, "That was mind blowing. That was so great. I loved that. I was hanging on every moment." And then and then two people are like, "That's an hour and a half. I will never get back of my life." It's like you know you kind of start to see how subjective it all is, and um, and so yeah, you know, um, it, it's been a lot of work, and you know, I can share at some point if if you like the kind of the work of I, of going from self-producing to um, institutional support, but um, but I I for one am sort of um, I'm grateful for my early days where I you know got to try some mm. stuff out before the big kind of gatekeepers and, and power brokers were seeing the work. It's really interesting. I, I definitely think it's something, as you said, endurance test, like a lot of people I think are so disheartened by the years, especially as like working class people, the idea that you, you sort of aren't able to access these spaces can be really off putting, but it's finding the joy and the purpose in the work. And what I've sort of, noticed while perusing some of your stuff is that there is a joy and there is a focus and there is always or at least from in my perspective there always seems to be like a, a message that's associated with the work as well um i want to talk about jimmy does dating the um online sketch and it's like a it's, it's a trailer for a theater production which has been and gone but the obviously the the online version remains perpetually there uh, i wanted to talk about it as a trans person to what extent does that do you think that played into the creation of the of the writing of the piece itself and obviously you're in that and yeah could you talk about that experience with developing that what a what a fun question i haven't thought about jimmy does dating in such a long time so Amazing. yeah so i mean um so that was a um a one person show called no strings attached that um then i kind of went okay 
you know, instead of sort of doing a, um, you know, a, a trailer that's like a, because it's so hard to, to translate live theater into mm. trailers. So kind of when instead of doing like a, you know, a regular trailer, I wanted to actually create something that would stand alone. So I took the character Jimmy from the theater piece and then created a kind of standalone short series of, of three, um, you know, kind of three sort of three-ish minute long um, videos that were the same character, but but not the content of the show. And um, and it's interesting, you know, I haven't really reflected back on this, actually. Thank you for this question, because now I do a lot of um, what I what I'm calling constellations. My my work in the last couple mm. of years is starting to gravitate gravitate towards constellations of work around a single premise or a theme. So rather than sort of creating a theater piece or a play um, and then, you know, touring it or, or producing it a bunch um, and then leaving it there, I'm tending to kind of create different uh, creations in different mediums around this single theme. So, for example, um, so that was, I guess, a, probably my earliest example of that, where it was mm. a theater piece, but then it was also this short uh, web series that had a life of its own. So that web series, you know, got... Uh, presented by the um, San Francisco um, Trans Film Festival and by Inside Out, which is uh, Canada's largest LGBTQ plus festival. Um, so it had its whole own life away from um, the mm. theatre piece. And now, so for example, um, with uh, Climate Change and Other Small Talk, this podcast um, uh, that I have just released, um, that's, you know, that's the sort of podcast um, creation, but then I'm ha- going to have a second climate creation that is around similar themes, but in a very different um, format and medium. And the idea then with these constellations, or, or also as a third example of that, being Childish. So Childish is a verbatim piece where I uh, spoke with over 40 kids um, about uh, life and love and climate change and uh, mental health, like basically anything kids wanted to talk with me about, we discussed. And then I have adult actors speaking kids exact words. And that, so that's the premise is adults speaking kids exact words, not pretending to be kids, but being fully adult and seeing does that change how we listen to kids if we have mm-hmm. adults speaking these words rather than kids. So that's the kind of single premise, but then the series of the constellation of creations around that premise there is a web series that's on my website as well. There is, there was a digital production. Um, and now, um, in uh, early next year, the live, uh, theater production will, um, will launch. And each of those parts of the constellation, it's not just an adaptation. Like it's not just a web series adaptation versus a live adaptation. There's slightly different content and a very different use of form in each of those. So the web series, for example, is very, uh, you know, very snappy, very quick scenes, very, it's, it's designed for an online audience who are used to kind of, you know, scrolling on Instagram or TikTok mm-hmm. or wherever. They're used to these short sound bites. So it's created with a very different kind of tempo. Um, and it's different content versus the live version because I have audiences in a theater where we get to kind of have a slightly longer co- kind of conversation and attention span. There's different content, but also a very different trajectory. And also kids at some point during the piece arrive, you know, um, in the piece as well. So we break the verbatim format. So it's sort of like 
these constellations then around a single premise or theme. And, and that's interesting. You know, I hadn't actually considered that Jimmy Does Dating in uh, that was a uh, 2016 was actually my earliest iteration mm. of, of a constellation. Wow, that's that's really fascinating. I think it's something we've talked before about um, about this idea of diversifying and, and finding different ways to look at the same I was gonna say problem but theme I guess um, yeah I've, I've really enjoyed it and it, the transparency of the process as well seems to be something quite important to you like I know a lot of the scripts are available online and, and things like that does that feel like you're being quite bare and open with yourself as a creative I mean um, like I guess you know for me uh, you know Access has always been a important part of my process, just kind of looking mm. at, okay, who do I want to engage in the pieces? And what are the different ways that um, different groups of people can actually, you know, what are the pathways in for the work? Um, you know, and so I know, for example, um, you know, some um, folks with neurodiverse brains, um, you know, um, relate better to being able to first like have a bit of a, a heads up first kind of read a, a transcript or, or a script or um, get a bit of a, um, a better sense of what the process might be before being able to engage directly into the work um, you know um, so yeah just kind mm. of for me thinking you know paying attention to thinking about who do I want to experience this work where where are they where do they hang out where's a comfortable space for them often my audiences um you know i love my theater going audiences i also have um you know a lot of my work has been aimed at non-theater going audiences at people that may have only ever seen one or two plays in their life that they got dragged along to at school and hated because it wasn't either the content or the kind of form that uh, resonated with them so you know some of my work for example even after I started being able to access institutions and um, theaters to to produce my work in I still um, sometimes chose to tour for example uh, my one-person shows outside of theater spaces so I've done a lot of touring and I would tour with mm. my own theater lighting equipment so that I could you know, I would uh, would be able to kind of um, protect the production quality. Um, I, I toured my own, you know, uh, projection, lighting, and sometimes even sound equipment as well. And um, and so, you know, I've done shows in youth centres, in town halls, in, you know, in spaces um, that, uh, you know, like I said, that was kind of my earlier practice was because I only had access to those spaces. But then in, you know, somewhere in the middle, I was sort of like, okay, well, a lot of my audiences... Um, don't hear about the show at the theatre or don't or don't feel comfortable in the theatre or don't want to go in the theatre, but they absolutely will go to a space that they're already showing up to, a space that they already feel ownership over, um, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's been it. And for me also, it, it that was a learning process in figuring out, well, what type of spaces? Because I still had to have a lot of parameters to protect the quality of my work. For example, I learned very early on, my space does not fit within bars or cabaret spaces. I love work in bars and cabaret spaces that are made for that type of space. That's not my type of work. I need a more um, focused audience, a quieter audience. It, it doesn't really work in my pieces to have sort of, um, you know, uh, loud kind of background things going on. So, you know, so learning like how to kind of, you know, take 
take care of my audiences and bring my audiences in, but also how to take care of the art. You know, what are the right contexts to put my work into? There's been a really big discussion over here over the past like few weeks and months about um, theatre uh, actor and the, the way in which we enter into other people's creative spaces. Um, you might have heard about it. There was a, there was a, a, a show, show is not the right word, performance of um, The Bodyguard, the musical um in the city where we live manchester mm-hmm. and there was audiences like getting up and singing along to the because it's a pop it's a jukebox musical and singing along and having to be like removed from yep. the theater and it it's really interesting that you've sort of predicted that almost to a degree and gone this is it doesn't work in a traditional theater space or it doesn't work in a pub and being aware of where your audience is at i think is 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 really a good quality for any creative to have but especially you seem to inhabit many different hats producer writer director do you feel like you're putting on a different hat when you're choosing a space rather than when you're writing the content oh that interesting question um yeah well i mean for me um i'm an artist that from the beginning well actually i don't know that i always used to be like this but but now um in the last kind of chunk of time from the beginning of my piece I am always allowing the producer in me and the artist in me to to have a conversation from the very early stages. I'm not an artist that sort of goes, mm. allow me to just free reign of my artistic thing. I'll, I'll, let me just create what I want to create because my art form itself is being in conversation with people. And so, you know, so knowing and mm. understanding my audience, understanding, for example, you know, if I want to speak with, um, you know, working class audiences, for example, or uh, also like uh, non-white audiences, you know, like understanding that, you know, and welcoming within a piece, like like when I sort of say it doesn't work where there's loud chatter going on, like at a bar, that doesn't mean it doesn't work when there's chatter going on in the audience, but building the piece producerially from the start to be able to contain right I'd like people to be able to nudge each other in the audience and side chat or I would see it as an enormous success if someone started singing along you know in in a piece sort of thing but so allowing the producer and the artist in me in the beginning to go right what is this piece who do I want this to be in conversation with so therefore what are the right spaces what's the right form of the piece what are the kind of things that are going to be conducive to the audience I want to speak to having a great experience of this piece. And when I say great experience, that includes being challenged by the piece because mostly I do want my audiences to be challenged by the piece. So what is the right circumstances, mm-hmm. including um, venue and space, including form in which to have audience have um, a good time, but also be challenged and have to ask them very big questions of themselves and each other throughout the piece. And, um, and but having said that, even though I allow then the producer and the artist to be in dialogue about that in the, the, the beginning, I also still then, once I've made some decisions, I have to like kind of ask the producer to leave the room then, you know, the producer and me, my producer brain to, you know, <laughs> just take a seat out in the hallway while I'm actually creating. So it's like I, you know, I kind of agree on some parameters with my producer and artist brain. And then I'm like, when I'm actually writing and creating, I'm like, when the producer sort of starts to go, oh, the audience is not going to like this or blah, 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 or something or rather, or this is mm-hmm. not going to fit in the venue. I just say, okay, 
can you just take a seat out in the hallway for, you know, I'm writing right now. I'm just going to write. And then at the end of the day, we'll have that conversation, you know, or I might just literally schedule it into my calendar. Right. Um, this question is coming up for me. Do I need to rethink the venue? Do I need to rethink the, uh, the form or something? But right now I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm creating, you know, um, so kind of still being able to, you know, uh, um, uh, that's where I allow that creative freedom to sort of have full reign as well. I love that. That's really, yeah, because it does make a huge difference. Like, so we, me, myself and Romina each run a poetry open mic night, but mine is in a bar in the, like, city centre, whereas yours, Romina, is in a coffee shop, like, a little bit more out of the way, and the tone, even if you read the same pieces, can be hugely different within those spaces because you, you, you're you aware that people are, like, drunk or inebriated or, 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 or very much not, and... I would, yeah. Do you have you found that reading different some of the same pieces row at, at Switchblade and then at, at Nata? Do you feel like you adapt your words at all in the reading? Yeah, absolutely. Like at Nata, I always obviously it's a coffee shop. It's also my place mm. of work, so I I take mm. that into consideration because a lot of the time there's at least one or two customers in the audience. Um, mm. So yeah, I keep it light at night. It's early day. It's early in the evening as well. Um, so I like I like to keep it light, family friendly. But somewhere like Switchblades, I probably will have a beer or two if I come down. Uh, mm. It's in the basement of a bar of a pub. Um, it's it's a different vibe. So when I go down there, I, for some reason, I always do a little bit like deeper and darker. You know, yeah. because physically we're in a deep, deeper and darker place. I think maybe. I've I've not sat there and and had that. I've I've just answered that question now. You know, I've never thought of it before. I think I'll do it subconsciously, mm. but yeah, I've absolutely plays into it. That's fascinating, isn't it? It's really, into, and that's part of the conversations mm-hmm. that I think this medium unlocks by having that longer form discussion. Interesting. So let's get on to one of the main reasons um, that we wanted to talk to you, which is climate change and other small talk. I love the name yes. for a start. Yes. <laughs> Just very, very clever. Um, so you. tell us about the process of working on such a huge concept. You work with creative teams from around the world, from your native Canada, Mauritius, Chile, India, Austria, Australia, Nigeria. How did that? How did that come about? And did it feel like a a momentous task. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you for asking. Um, yeah, I mean, it it's sort of um, uh, similar to a lot of my pieces now, where um, I'm really interested in how to kind of get the form of the work to say something already mm. about the content. And so, for example, with this piece, I I thought that I was going to write my own play about climate change because, like, you know, most of us, I was getting increasingly concerned about climate change. So I thought, okay, Mm. well, I'll do what I do best, which is, you know, create a theater piece. And so I got accepted into this uh, incredibly mind-blowing artist residency in the Arctic Circle, so on a boat in the high Arctic, like way north of uh, um, Scandinavia in the Svalbard Islands. So I spent, you know, um, a couple of weeks on board with third scientists sailing around these islands, each of us working on our own, um, you know, on our own pieces. And I started, you know, frantically writing, a, you know, I wrote about a dozen short plays or the starts to a dozen short plays on board the boat. Um, so kind of my idea shifted from being a full length play to then shorts. But then the idea for collaborating with others came about when, 
one day when we visited the world's northernmost uh, climate research station and met scientists there who, um, you know, collect all of this, do all of these things to collect this very localized data about the weather and other kind of impacts of the climate. And that's that local data is really essential in understanding what's going on in terms of um, climate change in that region. They don't stop there, though. They then combine that data together with hundreds of other weather stations around the world. And it's that in and in science, but also in climate activism, it's that real interplay between the very local and the very global that is so important to both our understanding, but also our action on the climate. We have to have these international agreements and, you know, we have to have cooperation because this is something that impacts us all. But that agreements and that cooperation can't replace that both the studies, but also the solutions need to be very, very micro locally based as well. It's not a one size fits all solution because, you know, Solutions to climate change are as much about um, changing our relationship with the planet. There is much about changing our economies. There is much about challenging capitalism and, you know, um, colonialism and, and all of the kind of things that have gotten us into this mess. And so that means that the solutions have to be very local as well. So I thought, okay, well, why not reflect that in this piece of art, you know, do that with theatre artists as well. Instead of me writing this one or these many narratives, um, you know, collaborate with these teams of artists around the world who are each going to, who have each written their own very locally specific something that answers locally specific questions or asks locally specific questions, um, and then combining, pulling that together into this global podcast. So that's sort of, you know, how the how the idea came about and we ended up with then. And it's nine, so it's nine full creative teams. It's uh, locally based actors, playwrights, uh, directors, sound designers, but then with some kind of central coordination also from uh, my team, we have, you know, a central audio uh, producer and, you know, impact producer and lead producer as well that are kind of supporting all of these groups and, and pulling it together into this uh, global podcast. <laughs> Yeah, truly, it's such a huge task to take on, and it 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 sounds like something that would be um, logistically quite difficult to 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 oversee, and just in terms of time zones for one, and and all of this. So, how did you go about finding and recruiting the voices that you wanted to be a part of of this, and and how did you make sure that they mirrored, you know, your tone and, yeah. and message? Well, the, so the kind of the criteria that I'd set out for who I wanted to collaborate with was firstly, um, it was really important in the series that um, to, like I, I cut some, some general style parameters, which was that I wanted these pieces to either be mm. somewhere in the satire or humor or comedy or absurdity or some one of these genres that would kind of help us get in sideways, help audiences access a difficult topic sideways. Because I noticed for myself, even despite working on a climate piece, like I get overwhelmed by, you know, when the latest like study comes in or, you know, it, we're in such a dire situation that sometimes I've just started, you know, flicking past the news article, like it's, it's overwhelming. So I wanted something that, you know, that people, that particularly, you know, folks who are working hard, so working class folks, for example, 
at the end of a really long work day could come home and actually enjoy listening to rather than it being another thing to stress about and worry about. And, you know, I wanted people to be able to, to look forward to and enjoy listening to these audio dramas that yes, ask really difficult questions and delve into really difficult and quite scary things, but that do it in a way that is like fun and, and entertaining as well. So that was a kind of first criteria that the playwrights had to have. You know, there are a lot of playwrights who are fantastic at writing very serious stuff. Um, I really sp particularly wanted to look for folks who could write to serious themes, but uh, within these kind of genres. Um, and secondly, um, really embedding climate justice um, into the selection of playwrights. So we, you know, it's no surprise that on the climate stage, both in terms of um, solutions in terms of decision making, but also in terms of who is impacted the most by climate change and with the least amount of resources to deal with it. It's, it's all the same mm. groups of people who, um, are impacted, you know, disproportionately by everything else, who have less, you know, decision making power in other ar arrays. So it's, um, black, indigenous, people of color, um, uh, working class, um, trans folks, um, you know, it's, um, it's, it's people who have less power within the rest of our society who also are feeling the brunts first. And I mean, every single person on this planet is, is and will be impacted by climate change. It's, it's, um, certain groups of people who are impacted, um, earlier, more severely with less resources to deal with it and less decision making power. Um, you know, and also it's these same groups of people then who are dealing with the, the impacts of climate change who also have the smarts and the wisdom and the solutions and the lived experience that can help everyone else, you know, figure out what are the best solutions to climate change as well. So, um, so, you know, uh, of our nine playwrights, um, I think you have, I know you have different terminology in the UK, in Canada, we would say, um, BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and, uh, people of color. Um, so seven of nine, uh, playwrights are, um, racialized playwrights, uh, and, uh, you know, mm -hmm. also just an attention to kind of, you know, other, the other areas, like I mentioned, um, working class folks, um, you know, trans and queer folks as well. So that was sort of another kind of, I wanted playwrights from communities who were, uh, you know, most impacted by climate change. And then also a kind of focus as well in, you know, we have four of um, these, uh, you know, th theater teams in Canada, because that's sort of where I'm based and where I could get a lot of access to the resources. Um, of the five international partners, four um, are in the global south. So again, sort of really looking at communities who are disproportionately impacted. So, you know, our teams in Nigeria, in Mauritius, in Chile, and in India. Um, and then the actual logistical, I worked with a, I worked with a, um, a theater agent. I mean, I drew on a lot of my own networks and relationships as well, and then also worked with a theater agent with that criteria to go, okay, who, uh, who should, you know, who should I be in conversation with about partnering mm. on this? Yeah, it's it's really exciting, and I can't wait for the rest of the um, episodes to be to be making their way out. It's a weekly format, and they're they're quite bite sized, aren't they? Twenty minutes or so. Yeah. At yep. what point was the decision taken to say this is a, a twenty minute podcast, and I'm assuming the rest of them are going to follow that same structure? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so again, that was for me about kind of um, going, okay, who do I want to engage and how? Mm. And it was sort of going, okay, uh, I'm interested in people who, you know, who it, it might be a lot to ask them to kind of sit through a, you know, a 60 to 90 minute, you know, a theatre going audience is very used to a 60 to 90 minute format. But, um, you know, non-theatre audiences are not necessarily. So, again, I kind of wanted to make these, you know, bite-sized things that you could listen to when you're tired at the end of a long day of work, um, little snapshots in. And also, in particular, I wanted them to be a, of a length that you could program other things to happen around these short episodes. So, for example, um, you know, we've, uh, we've also got this uh, um, listening party guide that we've uh, put out that's, you know, encouraging folks to host their own listening party. So so one format of that could be like, you know, like a book club, but the podcast version. So, you know, people organizing in their own living room or a community space, you know, okay, we're going to like um, all listen together to one episode, but then have a discussion around it. So it felt like if we were asking them to listen to a 90 minute thing, that makes it a very long sort of something so it's like you know people can then listen to a 20 minute episode or listen to two episodes and then have a really lively discussion around it that sort of then builds in this you know what I wanted to happen with the work which is I want people to not just listen to it I want people to be in conversation with each other I want you know and then ultimately I want people to take action around it so that's also where you know we've worked with an impact producer um, you know, to kind of uh, channel people into action. For those not in the know, can you just live, give, give us a little bit more information about an impact producer? Because that sounds like a, a fascinating job role and part of the process. Yeah, yeah, and um, and that's actually like a lot of people in theatre over here don't know what that uh, role is either. It's it's a role more common in the documentary film world. Mm. So um, I sort of started looking, going, huh. The documentary film world, world is doing this a lot better than uh, we are in theatre of taking the energy of, um, you know, an audience and the and uh, you know uh, and channeling them into action. So an impact producer's role is to basically look at the art and kind of go, let me see, okay, what's what's the art that's been made, or ideally, you know, weigh in earlier in the process and kind of you know negotiate that as well. And how can we channel, you know, what are the actions that an audience could take? So it's like, and I noticed really earlier, you know, at some point in my theatre practice, it's like my work has always been political. It's always been about things that I'm interested in and changes that I would like to see happen in, you know, the communities, my communities around me. And uh, what I noticed, though, was I was creating this work that when it was doing a good job, it was you know, the audience was having this experience and feeling moved or feeling outraged or feeling, you know, um, a new, like a, a sort of a shift in an opening in worldview or something was happening. And then we just sort of send the audience out of the theater or out of whatever space it's in and off into their everyday life. And, and I don't know, who knows what, what happened, but, um, but it, it felt like a waste of sort of that energy of, of the audience to just send them off and hope that some hope that they did something with that energy. So an impact producer in, for example, with this project has kind of been, you know, very tangible, like what are the campaigns 
or what are the ways that audience members could get involved, either through signing petitions, through joining local um, chapters or groups, climate groups, through, um, you know, donating money, through shifting their own behavior or, you know, insisting that um, government shifts policy or, you know, those type of things. So really kind of going. And, and that was also very freeing for me as an artist as well, because it meant that because I knew there was going to be somebody or some bodies, yeah. some people to like these connections to climate movements to catch people's energy and channel them into action. It meant that I didn't have to get the blueprint for the problem, the actions, the call to action into the art itself. I could focus on just in the art, creating a compelling story with compelling characters, dealing with questions that I didn't have to try to get a solution into the art. I just had, you know, had to got to create a sort of experience for the audience that then I could trust that on the other end of that experience, mm. there would be someone to catch yeah. them and go, here's now really what you can do. I haven't heard of that role here, and and but maybe obviously we're not. I'm, for me, I'm mm. not that involved in documentaries or films, so it's really interesting though because, like as you say, you don't you can just concentrate on the art and creating and writing the the compelling story, um, which in itself does ask people questions and does invite activism and change and everything else but um, in a very different way than someone telling you, sign this petition, donate here, go there, you know. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It does free up your time, doesn't it? Because I think we often task ourselves with being 360 on a project. You know, you producing it, writing it, following up, making the ticket sales come in. And that's it can be exhausting, can't it? So to have that person that you know and you trust as part of your process must must be freeing to the to your brain to just be like, right, I don't need to worry about that. <laughs> that's being yeah. dealt with. Yeah. And it's really something it's sort of for me been a, a provocation for the theatre industry in, in Canada as well, is because it's not a role that we typically have here. It's um, for me, my provocation has been to my peers, like what if we saw that role as pivotal as we see having, for example, mm. a stage manager in theater or having a producer like, you know, I would never um, now with my theater, with my plays that happen within institutions and theaters, we would never dream of doing a play without a stage manager. It's just a normal thing. Like you wouldn't ask, you know, the playwright or the artist to also be the stage manager within one of these institutions. I mean, certainly within an indie space, we often take on five bajillion roles ourselves. Um, but it's a, a, a provocation to then theatre companies. What if we saw that as normal and budgeted for it, resourced it, et cetera? Um, you know, because it's certainly um, that's that's an aim of many theatres is to kind of have a sort of a, a way to catch people and channel them into action. But, um, you know, we're all busy, like, doing the five bajillion other things. So I think it's also kind of a structural and systemic change that we need to have within our industries um, because it is it is really hard to do that when you're under, you know, under-resourced and have don't have that team member or that person whose, you know, role that is within theatre. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm really sort of hoping that, you know, our industry will kind of adopt that as a, as a mm. norm. To what extent do you see yourself as, a, as an activist? Uh, I mean, 
I do first and foremost, I see myself as an artist that is mm. that makes very political work. And um I mean I like I guess I, I see myself as an activist in the way that I aspire for my work to have activist outcomes. But I also know that activism is a very skilled uh you know, role. Um mm. and um, you know, I wouldn't sort of presume to to say that I have you know, a bunch of the skills that many of my activist or organizer friends have, you know, um, and I would personally sooner um, partner with and build bridges with activists and organizers so that they can do what they do best and, um, you know, um, so that that can also free me to focus on, you know, making really, really, really excellent art. Um, and, you know, but having said that, my art, I mean, there's sort of, uh, I mean, I, I think there's value in art for art's sake. Um, me personally, I, my art is always because there is change that I want to see in the world around me. Um, and, you know, um, and like I said, I, I, that doesn't mean that I want to always embed like I it's important to me that my work doesn't feel didactic you know I want my work to raise um, as many questions as it provides answers and you know but I guess that is for me that is uh, you know how I perceive I guess my activism can be effective is you know people mostly don't want to be told how to think or feel you know, so in terms of being effective with my activism within my work, I want to create an experience that allows people a window into um, asking a whole bunch of questions uh, for themselves. And, um, you know, so so yes, that's a sort of, I, I think of myself as like my work has an activist element, but I wouldn't presume to think that I'm, you know, um, uh, as skilled as, you know, folks who that's what they do is they're you know um they are activists in the world and that's the the skill set that they've crafted that's a great answer yeah i can tell that you're very conscientious about the work um that you're putting out and it, it it's fascinating to me so in poetry we have the idea of of found poetry um and taking other people's experiences and redrafting or re rewriting those and taken on a voice and I, th I thought that that was something both with childish and um with working with these nine creative teams on the podcast that you very much often seem to be putting yourself in somebody else's shoes and trying to look at the world from their perspective i wondered when you were doing the interviews with the children for childish it, it can be hard not to self-insert ideology or or opinion onto that in, in an interview style we all do it every day and unconsciously um how how did you go about trying to create authentic voices for the people who you, you, you use in their their language and their ideas yeah yeah great question um i mean for a starters to say with childish um it's I see it as a little different than other verbatim pieces. Mm. I didn't necessarily set out to kind of just, I guess, present the quote unquote authentic voices of children. I set out with an experiment 
for um, because if I was doing that also, I would have children directly speaking in the work, mm. like speaking for themselves. But to me, and that's often in a verbatim piece, you kind of try to have sort of, you know, actors um, a little bit more authentically kind of trying to speak the words of, of somebody else. But in this this piece, I was interested, what would happen if somebody who the words don't belong to speaks the words? What do we learn? Does that make us listen kind of differently to um, who we imagine the source to be? Does that kind of prop like the, the work is also very much for an adult audience. Does that make the adult audience then go away and go, huh, I'm going to I'm going to like actually have a conversation with my kid differently. I, I never knew, for example, some of the content around um, mental health, like, uh, you know, it's not like, like these are things that we don't talk to kids about very much. Um, mm. And we need to be because, you know, I mean, honestly, when mental health came up as a topic in the interviews, I, to be honest, had a little bit of a freak out shut the conversation down, went away and did my whole own research about how to talk with kids about mental health, et cetera. Then I went back and spoke with the parents and kind of went, look, this has been coming up in interviews, particularly actually suicide as a theme was coming up in interviews as well. Um, And I went back to the parents and went, here's the research I've done. I'd like to talk with your kids again. And they were like, oh, oh my God, please, yes. Uh, You know, they were shocked for starters, but then also, yes, please do talk you know, because it's if it, it not talking about it with kids doesn't mean they're not thinking about it and they're not talking about it. So for me, this was all as much a process. It wasn't I didn't necessarily aim to present these quote unquote authentic voices in this piece on stage. I aim to have a process between adults and kids about how do we and how don't we listen to kids and what can we learn both about kids, but also about adults. What are the lines that actually sound eerily familiar when an adult says them and what do we learn from the fact that that's eerily familiar what are the lines that sound completely ridiculous and quite hilarious coming from an adult and what do we learn about that as well um so that's sort of like you know in in terms of the kind of my my approach in that piece to kind of the idea of authenticity but then in terms of kind of kids voices and kids leadership roles even though i was clear i am the writer in this piece um, and was very clear with kids from the beginning about, you know, here, okay, here's what I'm going to do with the words. Here's, you know, how I will come back to you, but here's also how I won't come back to you. Here's, you know, the process. If you kind of go away and think, you know what? I kind of said that thing, but I don't, I don't really want that in the piece. Like here's a process for you to come back, um, to me to, to talk about that and, and revoke permission. Like, um, that consent was always re- retractable. We also went through a whole consent process because unlike, um, adults where you kind of, I mean, I think adults need con- um, in-depth in consent processes too, especially kids need to even understand what is the concept of consent. So before we even did interviews, we did a whole process around practicing consent. What is consent? Now let's practice. How do we say no? We did practice scenarios, mm. et cetera. Um, so we did a whole kind of like consent building process, it, you know, a- as part of it as well. But then also something that um, um, grew throughout the process, too, was I started just going, all right, I'll do these interviews. We'll do the consent process. Um, I didn't imagine actually having kids on the creative team, but kids were so fascinated by the process of making the work. And I found them so intelligent and smart and awesome in their ideas and their questions that they were asking just about the theater piece that I then went, oh, actually, 
let's what why not have kids on the creative team so we actually ended up with an intergenerational creative team where i had um a core group of um seven kids um you know but who the youngest when they started was um six and the oldest wow. was 12 and then so seven kids who were the dramaturges for the piece um so i you know they were the dramaturges and um for the web series they were the script editors and we had, and then our oldest um, team member, one of the actors, was 77. So we had an incredibly widespread of ages, um, and I had an absolute blast working creatively with kids. Um, and that sort of felt like a way to then kind of bring in some of uh, some more of kind of kid voices, kid autonomy, and kid leadership for the actual creation itself so that then it became this kind of true interplay between this experience so so again it wasn't sort of necessarily about anyone's quote-unquote authentic experience it was about a range of perspective and, and experiences and a range of questions that then that made us ask as audience members and as creative team members that's amazing that is and it's really it's really exciting to see such um interest from you know kids um, yeah, yeah, that, sound, mm. that sounds really good. Yeah. Well, part of the reason we ended up with seven core young collaborators was we actually started with three dramaturges. And we kind of like every time we went through a new workshop process, we sort of went, oh, we should just sort of add a few more kids like, or a couple more kids that were just really interesting and engaged would sort of pop up and we go, look, let's add them, ask them if they want to be on, you know, the, on the creative team. Because I also thought that at some point, some of our kids would start dropping off because this was like this piece was built over a five-year period and so I thought at some point one of them's going to be like you know what like love you all but this is kind of boring um you know <laughs> I want to go and play baseball or like I don't know hang out this is this is not cool anymore like I'm a teenager now this is uncool you know mm. and I thought that kids would kind of like drop off um but not not one of our core kids has dropped out of the process and in fact we get messages you know from parents going my kid wants to know when's the next like stage of the process like they re are really invested in in this work and this piece and all the different iterations and it's um our policy was sort of was um like you know to nobody ever gets ages out of the process kids move on to different types of leadership roles so now actually mm. almost all of the kids are now teenagers um and uh the my approach is in the verbatim content only lines um you know that like i will only integrate actual text in that was spoken by um you know some uh, by a kid um 12 or under um, so the teenagers, so like none of their sort of, none of the text makes it into the show, but teenagers kind of then graduate to kind of other leadership roles. Um, like, like the dramaturgy, for example, yeah. you know, um, is still really interesting to have teen dramaturges, which just adds this whole other kind of age layer to the piece as well. It, yeah, it sounds like, again, similar to the podcast, like both of these are, you know, the elevator pitch is 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 huge <laughs> you're looking at generational ideas and you're looking at um sort of real sort of profundity in the theme did that at any point ever feel like for in either of those projects that what we're tackling here is almost too big or too daunting of a task or uh, have they evolved naturally into what they are now which is yeah huge? 
I mean, um, great question. I mean, I, I feel like for climate change and other small talk, it has felt very daunting at a lot of points throughout the piece, mm. including when I was generating like when I was generating the resources. There were a lot of points I didn't know if this was going to happen. Um, also, when I was um, you know finding mm. the international partners, it was it's relevant to say that I was doing all of this in a pandemic context as well. And so, um, mm. you know, theaters were like some of the partners we were reaching out to was, wow, this sounds really interesting. I'd love to be involved. But theaters were also in crisis with uh, resources and figuring out what next and catching up on programming that they had had to cancel or reschedule. So, you know, so there were we were getting this fantastic response from international partners um, uh, but also, it, you know, there were a lot of points where I was like, I don't know if this is going to happen. And, you know, and that was like, that was a little daunting because also at that point, I put a lot of t my own time and energy into pieces. And I don't know about you two, but I have had, I have a piece, I've got some pieces that are sitting on the shelf, you know, that haven't, um, haven't sort of made it to the stage or made it to, you know, um, their format. And, um, and that's really quite heartbreaking when you pour all of this energy and time in. And when I really believe in a project and think a project needs to happen and when it doesn't. So, you know, um, and that increasingly that happens less and less the more I go on. It happened more in my earlier stages where I was hustling for the resources and whatever. And now I'm, I'm more tending to have more of a, you know, success rate with pulling the piece off. But this was, I mean, the climate change and other small talk was my largest scale work to date. I mean, over a hundred artists around the world have worked on this. Um, you know, there was definitely points where I was like, I don't, I don't think this is going to happen. Is this going to happen? And, um, you know, so, um, yeah, it was, it was daunting. Um, but also, you know, I think that that's where at different points in our careers, we kind of, you know, we need to ask ourselves, like, what is the right amount of stretch for me? And for example, that project, Climate Change and Other Small Talk, would probably would not have been the right amount of stretch for me six or seven years ago. I don't think I would have been able to pull that off. Now it was the right amount of daunting. It was where I was like, oh, I don't know. Can I do this? Can I make this work? But it wasn't, this feels completely and totally impossible. It was, you know, I felt at a point in my career and my work where I could pull it off, uh, but it was certainly a lot of work and, you know, and risked not being able to pull it off too. Is the pandemic the reason you made the jump or you started to produce um radio plays or the podcasts you know st like audio drama rather than stage is, is it, it is yeah, yeah it is I went very early on in the pandemic I decided right uh, I fully respected my peers in doing zoom plays and everyone did what they had to do and I really respect that I for myself went if I'm going to do digital work I want to make best use of the digital medium and I want to actually create it for that medium rather than sort of filming what's meant to be a live play or audio recording what's meant to be a live play. I worked then, um, I adapted another piece, for example, a comedy of mine called Men Express Their Feelings. I adapted that into a three episode audio drama, but I rewrote it entirely for as an audio drama. Yeah. Um, I went, you know, I, and I really got into, um, radio plays like as a cool medium that you can have an unlimited set and costume budget. It's more akin, 
to, uh, you know, what you can create in somebody's mind yeah. with just sound is really cool. So, yeah, it was the pandemic that turned me on to um, uh, to radio drama. And then I kind of went, but I want to I want to make it for that medium, not just mm. sort of. Yeah. You know, yeah. But I think obviously the pandemic has accelerated that. But I think we're we're at the age we're at like a digital age, aren't we? So I think more than than ever, more now than ever, like people are um, listening, like like you say TikTok, and they want like short things that they can his, listen to on the commute to work or back from you know back from her work and stuff. So yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, yeah, I just wondered whether you, whether the pandemic was the reason you made that uh, choice or or not yeah we have a big question here on the redraft podcast it's in the name um and this is it if you had the chance to go back and redraft a piece of work or an aspect of your career uh what would that be this is such a cool question and and i loved like just over the weekend digesting and thinking about this question too and it's interesting i kind of had all a, a lot of different answers to this question and what i actually came to was um an acceptance that uh, you there's no shortcutting. There's no shortcutting. I got I'm at draft ten of my career right now. That um, you know what or whatever draft I'm at draft ten where I do do things differently. Okay. Um, I have learned a lot that I you know I could kind of go if only I had just done that back early on in my career. Things would have and I have a lot of different kind of answers to that. But I also, I couldn't have got to draft 10 in my career without going through draft one, two, three, four, four, blah, blah, blah. The same way that I often, when I'm writing a piece, I'm like, why couldn't I have just gotten to draft 10 or the final draft of this piece from the start? I couldn't. I had to go through all of, all of the drafts. So just like, I think what I would then redraft is having a little more peace for myself and a little more ease for myself at different points in my career of accepting and embracing I'm going through the teething stages of this point in my mm. career and I'm going to get somewhere else, but it's okay that, that I'm at where I'm at. You know, I'm a very ambitious artist um, and at different points in my work, I've often been frustrated. I was frustrated that I wasn't getting the institutional support earlier on. I was frustrated that th at this and that I would kind of just like – give myself a little more peace and go, you know what, like I said, I'm glad that I didn't have the institutional um, attention at those phases. It allowed me to develop a very unique voice. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think the redraft for me is just having a little more peace and a little more ease that I'm going through the stages that I need to be going through and I'll get where I need to get. Um, and this is exactly how I feel about climate stuff too. I can't solve the entire world's problems. I can do my own part and I can keep on evolving my own work and my own practice and, you know, create the thread that is mine to create and then collaborate and work with other folks to throw down to kind of to turn this climate ship around. And I feel similarly about my own career. I'm going to create one thread at a time and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and have some peace, you know, during those, those phases that, I hope draft 15 of my career is going to be different. You know, I hope to keep evolving. This is not the final draft of my career. And I want, you know, uh, to bring in that sense of kind of peace and ease with, with where I'm at right yeah, now. Yeah, that's, that's a such a beautiful answer. answer. Yes, it yeah. is. It's my favorite answer so far. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think in the mo as creatives, in the, mo in the moment, we're so caught up with, 
how hard it is, how much graft it is, but really we should be appreciating the moments because we're going to be, we're going to learn a lesson, we're going to learn, we're going to evolve from it. So yeah, that's a beautiful way of looking at it. Thank you so much. And yeah, and we're going to look back and have a lot of fondness and appreciation for mm. those times that, yeah. that, you know, as well. So like channeling future self, channeling future me into present me that, that future me is going to look back and go, oh, that was kind of cool what I was doing, even though I had no idea what I was doing and I was a bit of a hot mess in this way or that way. Like being able to channel future me's appreciation of, of you know, present me. Yeah. Amazing. That's That's been an, a really insightful conversation. Um, we've loved having you on, Sonny. Is there anything else that you'd like to plug, make people aware of? Um, where can they where can they come and see you? Where should they find you online? Yeah, just really inviting people into the, the journey and experience together of um, climate change and other small talk. So the website is climatechangeandothersmalltalk.com. Um, or you can also look up my own website, sunnydrake.com. Sunny is spelt like the day, S-U-N-N-Y. And with the, the um, you know, climate change and other small talk journey, you know, like you said, it's releasing uh, once a week, but we also have a newsletter that people can sign up to. And that's sort of like, think of it as like a weekly zine. It's kind of like a deep dive into both the creative behind the scenes, but also into, you know, um, action um, items and stuff. Um, and um, yeah, there's a bunch of resources. I'm really proud of our website that, you know, um, just like really kind of um, shouts out to all of these um, amazing artists around the world as well. And um, so, yeah, just inviting you, inviting folks into the journey together. Incredible. Amazing. Right. Thank you. I think that about does it. So thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed chatting with you this Monday. Uh, Monday, Tuesday, morning. Monday morning. Is that where you're on? You're morning over there in that time, right? yeah monday morning yeah anything anything yeah. busy for the rest of the day what's your plans you... uh g keeping on with the podcast like you know the episodes are all done but like you yeah. know all of the kind of promo and all that side of yeah. things but yeah but huge thank you to you both what an interesting uh podcast you have and great questions and really lovely to chat with you both so thank, thank you. you so much thanks Amazing. for coming on thank you we'll see you again awesome okay yeah. take Cheers, care sonny. bye all the best thank you So that was Sonny Drake, a uh, fascinating chat, really good piece of advice at the end where he talks about when he answers our big question and he talks about uh, being quite impatient uh, in the early stages of his career and wanting all the success now because I don't know about you but I feel the same, I feel a bit, sometimes I have moments where I'm like where's my success, why haven't I made any money from this and all these other things but you know what, we, I need to take a chill and just enjoy the process and learn the lessons that I'm supposed to be learning so then I can elevate and, and hopefully attain some of the success that uh, Sonny has seen recently. Yeah, and the way he talked about it, career in terms of levelling up and taking that earlier run-ins with different things and, and applying them to him, his work now, which is at like a global scale, was definitely very inspiring. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, a really great chat. Thanks to Sonny for coming on. Um, mm. And yeah, just about to wrap up, but we've got uh, one more piece of news for you. Yes. So just like last week, uh, check back on Wednesday to get a double dose of the Redraft podcast where me and Romina will be answering all of your questions in a Q&A style format. We sat down and recorded that a little while ago, a week ago or so. Um, it was really good fun. 
You asked some great you questions. You did, and we're very grateful. Uh, and hopefully you get to know us a little bit better if you don't already. Uh, mm. So, yeah, make sure you tune in on Wednesday. Double dose of the Redraft podcast for your listening pleasure this week. Lovely. That about does it for now, though. So thank you very much. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of the Redraft Podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to this chat, you can help support us over on Patreon. We have three tiers of Patreon support available from three to eight pounds per month. Tier one is the Big Biro tier. In that, you receive a shout out in the episode after you join, access to all of our planning documents, and you can join an exclusive Instagram group chat with other writers to share notes, tips, feedback, and more. In tier two, the Fountain Pen tier, you get all of that plus pre-sale to any upcoming live events that we've got going on and you get to interact with our guests directly by emailing in questions in advance and in tier three you get the typewriter tier includes all the previous benefits plus a free art print from printer poet commission your own poem from us once a year and you also get feedback on a single piece of writing and that's once a month and of course you can also support us for free by following subscribing and dropping us a five-star review on the podcasting platform of your choice and we are really grateful for any level of support that you can offer we know it's a tough old world out there for everyone at the minute so thank you very much and if you can't support us in that way you can always just share us with your friends tell the world about us put us on your stories and give us five stars we'll be back every monday with a brand new episode of the redraft podcast for your listening pleasure 